So as I said, for, for two and a half chapters in the book of Romans, Paul has been trying to convince people of their need for Jesus Christ. And in this portion we're in, in Romans 3 today, the attempt to convince comes to a head. The, the wave crests. And we're almost over this entreaty of, if it weren't for Christ, despairing conviction. On the other side of this wave is going to become chapter after chapter after chapter of the most glorious, encouraging, hope-giving, life-giving truth about the gospel. He'll spend way more time unpacking the gospel and all of its goodness and all of its riches than he will telling us about the disease. But as I said, that's what he's been doing for two and a half chapters is telling us about this disease. And, and it comes to a head in this final day of reckoning, Paul calls, the day of wrath. He, he calls it a day when God's righteous judgment is revealed, when he will finally give his verdict over the world. He calls it the day when God judges what people have kept secret in Romans 2.6. It is the day in Romans 3, 6, when God will judge the world. It is a day that is coming. It is a day that each one of us will face because God is just. We can't change that. We can't alter him. We can't make him unjust. We can't make him wink at sin. We can't make him not care about love and justice. That is at the core of who he is. Now, everything that Paul has said and everything that he will say today, he is saying about those without Christ. He is describing mankind without the grace of the Holy Spirit operative in people through the blood of Christ. So please remember that. But he wants all of us to know this. Even those of us, he's writing to a church because he wants us to treasure the cure that God has given, to not let go of the cure that God has given and to help others see their need for the cure as well. And without a doubt, he wants us to enjoy and delight and experience the healing of the cure he has given. So he's trying to help us see our need for that. And as Paul continues to describe mankind without Christ, I want to pick up in the crescendo, the wave crest of his argument Starting in Romans 3, verse 9, we're going to go from Romans 3, verse 9, we're going to go all the way to 20, but I'm going to take it verse by verse. So Paul says in verse 9, picking up from where he's been for the last chapter and a half, what then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jew and Gentiles are all under sin. If you were here last week, I hope you will recognize this is a summary statement of Paul's argument that we looked at last week. That both the religious person, the orthodox believer, Jewish man, woman, and the secular person or the pagan, they're all, we're all under God's judgment without Christ. Our religion won't save us. Our secular beliefs and activity won't save us. Whatever we have in ourselves of our own resources won't, ex won't save us from that day when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Paul explained that the godless pagans who do not have God's written law as the Jews did, 
they were given by God still, even though it's corrupted and imperfect, they all have a sense of right and wrong as those made in God's image. And they will be judged on that day by how they responded to that inner law written on their hearts. And their consciences will bear witness to how they responded on that day when God will make clear and open the secrets of our hearts. And the Jews who were given God's law directly and objectively by God through the giving of the law of Moses are no better because having the law of God does no good if one does not keep the law of God. It only then becomes an instrument of condemnation. So Paul says all people apart from Christ are under sin. This is a particular term, a peculiar term to be under sin, but it it refers simply to sin's dominion. The picture is what you feel. You're under its burden. You're under its weight. You're under, in a sense, its authority. To be under sin is to be in bondage to it, to be held by it. Paul will explain later in Romans 6 and 7 that that our, as as a human family, our rejection of God has led him to hand us over to the slavery of sin. This is is essentially what he's been talking about in Romans 1. It doesn't mean that God makes people sin. It means that when man rejects God, God gives man over to man's own godless desires. He lets man go his own way and those desires ultimately enslave. They don't free. This is a terrible assessment, but Paul is not pulling punches because he's if I could use the word desperate for us to despair of ourselves so that we might find true hope and joy in Christ. So after that summary statement, I have three points. The first one is not even one. That's the way I've highlighted it, trying to use the text here. Paul's now going to use ideas and passages from the Old Testament to make his argument. So after saying that, that, all Jew and Gentile are under sin. He starts using the psalmists and other passages and paraphrases and ideas from the law that was given to the Jews to speak to them and to the, to the Gentiles about the truth of our condition. So he says in verse 10, as it is written, there is none, there is no one righteous, not even one. This is from the Psalms, but it's an incredible statement. It's an incredible indictment. There is no one righteous, not even one. And when I read this, I ask myself, is it really this bad from God's perspective that he he sits above the whole earth and looks at all the the hearts of, of morally mature men and women? I don't think he's talking about little toddlers or babies or people with disabilities that can't process, but it's another discussion, but God's looking at all mature men and women who have consciences, and he's saying there's, there's not one righteous, not even one. This word righteous in Romans is a tricky word. It can mean different things in different places. It can mean the judgment of God, so it could be saying that there's no one righteous, meaning no one will get a righteous verdict on that day, but it also speaks to the righteous character that's needed for a righteous verdict. And Paul is saying there's no one who will either get a righteous verdict and or we'll see certainly in this, there's no one who in and of themselves is righteous in the way that they need to be righteous to merit eternal life. This is a really rough claim, not even one. No one in this room 
in God's sight in themselves is righteous before God. That's what he's saying. No one in this city in and of themselves stands righteous before God. No adult man, woman in this country, in this world stands righteous before God. That is what Paul is saying. That is what not even one means. And again, I ask, is it really this bad? And I think to understand why Paul is saying this, we have to take a moment to try to think a bit more deeply about the law of God. Because it is the law that explains our righteousness or our lack of it. Do you remember what Jesus said are the law's pinnacle? The law's greatest commandment. And you probably all remember this. The law of God is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. One of the things Jesus is doing here when he uses the word love is teaching us that obeying the law is much more than about what you do. It is even more about why you do it. It's much more than about what you do. It is even more about why you do it. Charles Spurgeon tells a story to illustrate this. Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. In old English terms, that just means he loved his prince. His Prince Charles, whoever it might have been. And when he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. The gardener went home rejoicing. Now a nobleman heard of this incident and he thought if that is what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot what would he give me if I gave him a fine horse so the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift but the prince discerned his heart and said you expected me to give to you as I did to the gardener I will not You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. In other words, you're showing off with this horse. It's really about you by this beautiful steed you're giving. He might have said what Jesus said about the Pharisees. You have received your reward in full. You got to show off. Congratulations. God's standards of love are heart deep. You do what you do for someone because at the heart level, you value them and you cherish them and you want their good. This cuts me to the quick. As a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, I don't want you guys to see my secrets on the day of Christ Jesus. I'm not going to look good. I'm not going to look half as good as some of you guys treat me and pray for me and think of me. But I suspect that we'll all be in a similar boat. We do what we do if we're loving someone because we want their good. 
not our own. If on the other hand, you do what you do just to get something for yourself, this is not love. As Jesus put it, as Deb reminded us a couple of weeks ago, real love goes far beyond transactional, giving to get. Listen to the selflessness that the law of love calls us to. You have heard the law say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So God looks not only at what we do, but why we do it. And this is why Jesus said, relatedly, that if you publicly pray or give to the poor on the outside, but the, on the inside, just like this nobleman who gave the horse, you're looking for attention from others. Your prayers and your generosity aren't real at all, and you are essentially a liar. This is why Paul said that if you give all you have to the poor, but don't have an inner motive of love, it counts for nothing. The law is about a person's heart before it is about their outward behavior. And you, you can't tell simply by looking at someone's outer behavior what is it in their heart. By the way, this is also why we can't look at the law of God and think, I didn't kill someone. I didn't cheat on my wife. I'm not real bad, Lord. Jesus takes great pains in his teaching to show that the true nature of the law is internal. He shows that the laws of God are obeyed or disobeyed at the heart level. That's why he said, if you get unjustly angry at someone on the inside, it's as if you had murdered them on the outside. Anger isn't always unjust, but I would say that it is always dangerous because it is so hard for us to be angry and not sin. If you look with lust, Jesus says, on a woman that's not your wife, on the inside where no one can see your heart, it is, it is, it is as if you had really committed adultery on the outside. If you call someone worthless from your heart, you have trampled on their dignity so much that as an image bearer of God, calling that image bearer worthless, Jesus says, you are in danger of the fires of hell. That's how important each and every person is in their dignity as image bearers. So the law of God looks at our hearts, it looks at our motives, it looks at our secret thoughts and desires and judgments. And after looking at all that, God says here, there is no one who stands righteous before me. Second point, there is no one who seeks God. After saying there are none righteous, not even one, Paul goes on, elaborates further this way. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. I have spoken about this many times, but I think it bears rep 
repeating because it's so easy to miss. When we think of God's judgment over ourselves or over the human race, I think it's easy for us, more easy for us to think of mankind's treatment of one another. We can see that more visibly. The news stories are filled with that more clearly. But here God makes clear what our core sin, what our core problem as a human race is that breeds all other problems. He says, after saying there's no one righteous, not even one, he says, there is no one who seeks God. Not the way he is, not for who he is. When God says no one is righteous, not even one, he means this chiefly. It is in regard to how we treat him. And this is really easy for us to miss. In the Gospels, Jesus is asked by a man who comes to Jesus pretty sure that he's righteous. And he asks Jesus how he can have eternal life. And Jesus says to him, You know the commandments, keep the commandments and you will have eternal life. And the man says, which ones? And then he he should have stopped while he was ahead. Because then Jesus does something very interesting. He lists the 10 commandments, but not all of them. There were two tablets Moses received from the mountain, if you recall. And Jesus only lists the second tablet. He goes through every single commandment that deals with how we treat one another, the last six. He leaves out the entire first tablet that deals with how we treat God. Doesn't say a word about it. Did Jesus forget that God is the most important and that the greatest commandment is to love God? But he left every single commandment about God out. So hearing all the commandments of how we treat one another, do not commit adultery, honor your mother and father, do not covet another man's property, do not bear false witness, do not steal. The man says, I have kept all those since I was a child. And Jesus is in debate with him. He says, okay, you still lack one thing. Go and sell all you have. Give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. And most of you know the end of the story. The man goes away sad because he was so rich. He had so much. He couldn't do it. He couldn't give it up. Do you see what Jesus did? Do you see why he skipped the whole first tablet of the law? He, what is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus didn't forget the first tablet. It was the point of his spear. Jesus was trying to show the man that he wasn't righteous. He was an idolater. When the Lord put him to the test, the money that he had had the place of his heart that belonged to God alone. Brothers and sisters, if we want to understand what true righteousness looks like, there is only one place we can see it. We must look at Jesus Christ, his life, his heart. We must consider his devotion to Yahweh, 
his loyalty to his maker, his worship, his putting God, and I, I should be careful because Jesus was made as a man, but he was always a God. But Jesus put his father above all things. Jesus put his father above all people. He put his father above all other desires. His father was his deepest desire. From the very core of his being, each day with every word, with every action, with every thought, trusting and loving God, even to the loss of his own life. When we see this, we see what God means when he says, none of you are like this. This is what my righteousness really is. And we can, we can, we can see this and think, oh, that's, well, that's Jesus. That's crazy. That's, he's Jesus. That's amazing. I'm telling you, it is amazing. It is Jesus. And I'm telling you, it is what we were in the garden made to be. When God created us, this is the kind of heart I believe that he gave Adam and Eve. We've just fallen so far away from it that when we, we, we see it, we just can't believe it. it's what God would want from us. It just doesn't seem normal. And I believe that God would say, actually, this is normal humanity. This is what normal humanity is supposed to be. What you guys have done with it, your racism, your wars, your abortion, your corporate greed, your love of power and weapons and might, the way you've beat down your wives, the way that you kids have trashed your parents. <laughs> that's not what I was interested in. That's not what, that was not my idea. Now, if you want to know what my idea was, look at my son. You can call it amazing, but you should also call it normal humanity by my intention. As Paul pointed out in Romans 1, we have suppressed the truth about God and the honor that is due him. And we have turned to idols of self and it has wrecked us. We grope in the dark as a human race right now without Christ to understand what our true initial intention was in God's heart. Because it is, it is our treatment of God to whom we owe our greatest devotion and love, who is the most beautiful and good. It is our treatment of him through which Paul would say no one is righteous. Now, some qualifiers. The fact that there is none righteous, not even one, does not mean that we're all as bad as we could be or that we're all equally unrighteous. It does not mean that everyone is like Hitler or Stalin. It does mean that comparing our righteousness to others is really dumb. It does mean that our righteousness will never merit eternal life before God. 28 Olympic medals for Michael Phelps. He's a much better swimmer than my mother-in-law. I mean, no disrespect to Marsha. If you're listening, Marsha, I'm just telling you the truth. But when the race between Marsha and Michael Phelps is swimming from San Francisco to Japan, which is about 5,180 miles, thank you, Google. Didn't take me a long time to do that. Anyway, when that's the race, there's no difference. 
I mean, the difference is there, but it's, it's meaningless. Neither Marsha nor Michael Phelps is going to get 1% of the way there before, if they don't get help, and they've really set themselves off, they've drowned in the Pacific. That is what it is like trying to compare ourselves to others or to merit eternal life on our own record. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Some of you folks have, have had particular difficulties suffering the unrighteousness of others. Some of you folks have been particularly poorly treated by people in your life. I'm not trying to say, just be a doormat and embrace that and live that. And I'm not trying to say that. That's not what God is saying. He cares about you. He cares about your suffering. I am saying that does not justify you before God. That does not make you righteous before him. That does not absolve you of the commandment to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as you have loved yourself. Number three, the terrible effects of turning from God. Final point. In verses 13 through seven, Paul gets concrete about what it means that we are all under sin. First, he speaks of the effects of God's wrath, not God's wrath. He speaks of the effects of our sin on our words. He says terrible things here. Verse 13, again, he's quoting from the Psalms, speaking of the human race. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers, venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Words are a miracle. Words are a miraculous gift. I don't think we think enough about just words as a category. Like, we get to speak. We get to take what's inside here and make it known to someone who's outside here. With words, I show you who I really am if I use them rightly. This gift of speech is meant to be a tool to, to know one another, to take what is hidden and make it known to you and to receive that back from you. But God says you've used it to flatter, you've used it to slander, use it to condemn and intimidate and bully and boast. So our words are an open grave. They reveal our deadness and they kill and curse with bitterness. Then Paul uses moral test and imagery. He indicts our actions, not just our words. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the paths, of peace, the paths of peace they have not known. This is where the world goes without Christ. Again, not everybody is as bad as they could be, but this is our trajectory. And we might look back at history and think of things we've talked about before. Hundreds of years of the slave trade that Christian Americans embraced and thought was okay and good and profitable. 60 million plus abortions since Roe v. Wade. We, we might think about the thoughts closer to home, our own hatred and anger and condemnation that drives division in our own families. And Paul quotes the psalmist. He says, the feet of man are swift to shed blood. Swift to shed blood. I don't understand why we are so infatuated with crime why we are so infatuated with murder. Why is true crime a thing? I'm not, I, I, it's, it's really interesting. It's really enticing. It's, but why isn't true nobility a thing? Like why aren't there serial podcasts on Corrie Tin Boom and all she did 
to love those people who were suffering in Germany. Why? Why does that not get our, our attention? Paul quotes again this psalm. He says, our feet are swift to shed blood. These words reminded me of a story I read recently about a meeting that President Kennedy had with his chief military advisors in the summer of 1961. Kennedy was dealing with the quickly deteriorating relationship with Russia and the spread of communism overseas. And so our military advisors at the time presented President Kennedy with a plan. And that plan was for an unprovoked, first strike, nuclear attack on Russia. We've developed this plan. We'll probably have to go to war with them eventually. Why don't we just nuke them? This attack would have presumably killed, unprovoked, millions of people in an instant without provocation. Kennedy reportedly ends the meeting by walking out in the middle of it. He just gets up and walks out of the room. And with disgust, one man reports that he said, and they call us the human race. He might have said, their feet are swift to shed blood. It's more sobering when we consider that hurting one another in God's economy is not just about the harm we do to others, but it's about what we fail to do for others. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. You did this to me whenever you did it to the least of my brothers. How uncomfortable would it be for me or us to consider some of us, I feel this way, how much of our budgets could go to the poor and the persecuted more than to the best phone or another streaming service. This may not be something most of us are eager to consider and I don't bring these things to you to leave you condemned in your thoughts about them. I bring, you, bring these things to you to help us understand our predicament that we might despair of our own righteousness and be grateful to God for his and despair of our own boasting and just say, thank you, Lord. Help me, change me. I'm not asking you right now to take a catalog of your sins so that you can change yourself. I'm not asking myself to do that. If you hear that, if that's what you're getting from this message, you need to go change yourself now. You're getting the wrong idea. What I want to encourage you to do is to despair afresh of yourself, of your own righteousness, of your own merit. Let it go. Get that 70,000 boulders off your back anyway. Those of us who know what it is to try to earn our way to heaven and live as pathological legalists, we know it's awful. We know that it's imprisoning. And God never wants us there. He never meant us to carry that weight. We can't. It won't work. And he has something much better. Paul's last Old Testament reference here He rounds things back to Romans 1, the source of all of our troubles. He says in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
speaking of man without Christ. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The great theologian John Murray put it this way. What does it mean that there's no fear of God before their eyes? He writes, eyes are the organs of vision. And the fear of God is appropriately expressed as before our eyes. Because the fear of God means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension. And life is characterized by the all-pervasive consciousness of dependence upon him and responsibility to him. The absence of this fear means that God is excluded, not only from the center of thought and calculation, but from the whole horizon of our reckoning. God is not in all our thoughts. Figuratively, he is not before our eyes. And this, to God, is unqualified godlessness. So what's the result of this? The result of this is in verse 19 and 20. Mankind without Christ before the judge on the final day. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. On the coming day of God's judgment, when he will repay everyone according to their deeds, deeds and thought, words and actions, and what we have done and failed to do. The laws of God, his good laws, the laws that are holy and pure, laws that call us to love him as he deserves and to love one another as ourselves, these laws will not be good for us. They will not exonerate us. They will condemn us. His judgment will be unique for each person. It will be different for each person. It will fit each person, but it will be perfect and it will be precise, but it will never be a judgment of innocent or righteous. It will be a judgment incurring spiritual death, separation from God forever with an eternal punishment according to what is deserved and it will be just. I still struggle to understand eternal punishment. It is the most difficult doctrine In the Bible, what I encourage my heart with knowing is that it is just, it is fair. Whatever it will mean, it will mean fairness. So we end with this crescendo of judgment and bleakness, but we remember one more time, why is Paul writing this? Why is the Holy Spirit bringing this to us? Because he cares about us and he loves us and he wants us to acknowledge our disease and give up any hope of curing ourselves and embrace his cure. Embrace his cure. He wants us to know that he has a cure and it is one we can never get from our obedience to the law, to love him and love people. But what the law can do, if we understand it rightly, is cause us to cast aside hoping in ourselves and send us fleeing to Jesus. And then it's a great thing, the law. Now listen, I, I, I know there, there are tensions in the Christian life. There are tensions in Christian theology. God wants us to continue to pursue love. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to try to grow in loving him. He wants us to seek righteousness 
This is, this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. This is one of the core reasons why Jesus lives in us so that we can grow in love. But that's not what Paul is saying today. Paul wants us to see how fr- afresh, how insane it is to put our hope in our law keeping. To put our hope. He doesn't, he's not saying go and sin more and more so that grace will abound. He'll, he'll bring up that argument soon. But that's not what he's saying. But he's also not saying, hey, maybe you can just grow and get better after hearing this the, uh, about how, how poor you are at loving God and loving people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, it's insane to put your hope in your law obeying before God. Don't put your hope there. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt other people around you. Don't put your hope in boasting in your goodness. Don't condemn others when you receive such mercy for your own unrighteousness. He wants us to renew our hope in Christ, in Christ alone. His blood is what we have. It is all we have to commend us before a holy God of righteousness. And it is all that we need. He is all our boast. We have no other boast. He gives us a righteousness in him that passes the mustard. It's a gift through trusting him for it. Jesus and Jesus alone justifies us before the holy God who judges all. He was judged for us and because of this, we now stand accepted and righteous in his sight. That's the dessert. Mostly vegetables today. But the vegetables from God's word that he needs us to see and embrace and understand. 